as we begin this morning, want us to think about what, what is your favorite thing about our church family? What is your favorite thing about Dubois Alliance Church? I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but I want you to think about it for just a moment this morning. What is your favorite thing about our church? Now, for most of us, that's going to have to do with people. Uh, Probably nobody's sitting there thinking, we have the best pews. Uh, I hope that's not what you're thinking, but that's likely not what uh, is your favorite thing about our church family. Uh, it, it's going to have to do with people, not, and not the way that they dress or how nice of a car they have. Probably nobody has ever stayed at this church because of what everybody else is wearing. Uh, though, let's be honest, sometimes that tends to be our priority. And uh, on a Sunday morning, thinking about getting ready to go to church, what am I going to wear? Got to make sure it looks right. Or uh, Probably nobody's at this church because of how nice of a car somebody else drives. We have uh, a church family who I think uh, really loves each other. I think we're really good at loving one another. If you've been reading uh, 1 John chapter 3, you know that's what the second half of chapter 3 is about, loving one another. It's always nice to speak on a topic when I know my audience is on board with a subject. Uh, Sometimes I get up to preach and I'm like, oh boy, someone's getting ticked off. Uh, And this Sunday is no different. Um, (laughs) Just so you know, I want to set expectations. Uh, But no, uh, I know that this church, one of our priorities is loving people, loving one another. Uh, And so I I know that we will agree on at least the premise of this morning. Uh, But my guess is uh, those of us that who have that priority of loving one another, we could agree there's always room to grow. Maybe you're really good at loving people, but just the ones who haven't wronged you in some way. Maybe some of us, we're just not great at loving those who have wronged us. Or maybe you're really good at loving people, but just the ones who have been around for a long time, who have been a part of our church family for a while. Maybe you're really good at loving people, but you have no idea who the new people are in our church family, and you haven't made the effort to get to know them. Or maybe you're not so good at loving people. You're just good at tolerating them. And so people think you're loving because you're really good at tolerating people. Uh, As we discuss the end of 1 John chapter 3, I want us to ask God how he wants to grow us in the area of loving one another. How can we grow in the area of loving one another? It's it's easy for us to read something like 1 John chapter 3 and go, yeah, I do pretty good at that. And I think there are, there's something to be said of that. I think we can acknowledge when we're looking at an area we're gifted in or we're passionate about. But I think it's also helpful for us to say, okay, God, how do you want to grow me? Where are we going in this area in, in our walk? So I want to dive in. If you have your own copy of God's Word and you want to follow along with us, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3. I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, so if you want to follow along in the exact same translation, that's what we're following. That's what we're reading from, but it'll be on the screen as well. First uh, John chapter three, starting in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 
Is there anyone here who was unaware this was a basic tenant of Christianity? You came in thinking like, yeah, I thought we were just supposed to drink some Kool-Aid and, you know, wear a tie. No? Okay. So we're all good. We're all clear. This is what Christianity is about. Uh, it's, it's a message that they've heard from the beginning. Uh, hopefully it's a message you've heard from the beginning. You know that's kind of part of being a believer, being a Jesus follower, is loving one another. We as a body, that's what we're called to do. Even if someone has wronged us. Even if they go to another church. And they maybe even used to come to this church. Even if they dress differently than us and in a way that we don't necessarily approve of. Our love for each other is what should confuse the world. Have you ever thought about that? If somebody who didn't know Jesus was to walk in here on a Sunday morning, uh, was to come to one of our dinners afterward, was to come to an event, any event that took place in regards to our church family, would they be confused as to the love they saw? Because it was so different from what they knew, from what they've seen out in the world. Is that what would draw their attention. I think that's what we're called to do. Our love should be so intense in the church that anybody who steps in from the outside should be left wondering, what is it with this group of people? Yet churches are usually home to some of the worst bickering and grudges that we've ever seen. Why do you think this is? Why do you think that churches are where we find some of the worst grudge-holding and bickering? Because it's Satan's way to cripple the church. He knows that it doesn't matter how good your sermons are. doesn't matter how good your worship is. doesn't matter how theologically sound your statement of faith is. If the church doesn't love one another, it's useless. I want us to understand that doesn't matter how good you are at theology. doesn't matter how long you've been here. doesn't matter if your aunt, your uncle, and your grandfather help lay the stones of the church. If we don't love one another, we're useless. We might as well just go bowling because we're not doing anything for the kingdom of God. See, though we have been forgiven so much, we will still justify holding a grudge against another person and refusing to forgive them. Nobody will ever wrong us more or worse than we've wronged God. It's not possible. There's literally nothing that anybody could do that could wrong us more than we've wronged God. We have offended Him greater than we could ever be offended because He is holy and we are not. We're just broken, messed up people getting hurt by broken, messed up people. He's literally the God of all creation. And we've personally wronged Him. We've been forgiven more than we'll ever have the opportunity to forgive other people. Our love for one another should be the backbone of the church, should be what brings people together, should be what keeps people through the storms and the turmoil and and the infighting and the things that just happen through the offenses. It should be the core DNA 
of any church family should be the love they have for one another. Our love for one another should go beyond anything the world has ever experienced or seen. And so I think we just have to ask ourselves that question. Is that what would take place if Joe Jabrowski were to walk off the street into one of our events, would they just be in awe of the love they experience as they listen to the conversations happening, as they listen to what people are talking about in the bathrooms and in the offshoots and where other people aren't listening, would they be like, man, I don't get it. These people don't seem like they have anything in common, yet they love each other. They it's so weird. It's so strange. I know uh, all of us, uh, it's probably not too far of a stretch for us to think about Amish people, and, and when something happens in the Amish community, what happens? They hire Lowe's to come and build a, 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 rebuild their barn when it burns down? No. I think we're all probably a little bit in awe of like, man, they just, whoop, they come together, and it's rebuilt in like seven hours. It's impressive. It's, it's, it's amazing how quickly they come together and support one another in a community. Man, a church should have that. We should have that mantle. The world should be in awe of how we come together when people are in need, when people are hurting, when uh, the family is struggling. It should confound and confuse the world. It should be different from anything they know because we have access to the love of God. And it is greater than anything the world has access to. Verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Man, have you ever, and I'm raising my hand on this, so have you ever gotten mad at someone because you knew you were doing something wrong and they were doing the right thing and it really shone a spotlight on how wrong you were doing? I don't know about you, but I've, I've, I've even had a conversation with somebody about, how oh, man, this person's a dirtbag, and I don't like this person, or I'm really mad at this person. They're like, I really think that person's a good person. And I'm like, oh, why do you have to like them? I want you to be mad at them. I want you to not like them with me. I want to gossip about this person. And they instead say, oh, I, th- I think that person's a good person, or, or you know, whatever it is. Man, it's frustrating when someone else's obedience to God highlights our own there's nothing that can highlight your sin like that and make you feel like you've stepped out of god's will if you find yourself angry at someone because they are highlighting your sin by doing what is right don't be like cain and develop hatred and think oh that's just like a christian brown noser that's that's i don't i don't know what that person what they they always act holier than 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 thou now maybe they just really love jesus and they want to follow him, and they want to do the right thing. And that's the situation with Cain and Abel. That's what happened, is he saw his brother doing something more righteous than him. He was just given what he thought he should, what, the bare minimum of what he had to, and his heart wasn't in it, and so God didn't approve of it. Just because we give God something doesn't mean it's good. Our heart needs to be in that. Verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Uh, this one always confuses me when people are wondering like why they're getting so much backlash at work or from the world because they're following Jesus. It's like, man, did you not read the manual here? It's, the Bible covers this. See, we now live in a culture where to have morals and to have standards is called hate. 
It's a little different than 50 years ago when we shared similar morals and worldviews with the world. Now, to have these same morals and standards means that we're hateful people. I don't know if you've ever been called hateful for having morals or standards, but I have. The world hates us because we believe in right and wrong. To even acknowledge that there's such a thing as right and wrong is hateful in the world's viewpoint. Because we believe in objective truth, that you don't have to take someone's feelings into consideration in order for truth to exist, it can be wrong, according to the world. So don't be surprised, John is saying, when the world hates you. doesn't mean that we water down our faith. It doesn't mean that we compromise with our morals, with our standards. There's a lot of churches and people Uh, Christians who have decided to throw out their morals and standards because it might offend somebody. Well, tough beans. Jesus offends some people, and that's just how it's going to be. And so not that we dogmatically and arrogantly and ignorantly hold on to our standards and flaunt them in the face of people, but man, we better stick to what the Word of God says, and we stand by it. And don't be surprised when the world gets angry. Verse 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. If you were with us during our Abide series, we talked at length how vital it is to, uh, for a, uh, the Christian to live our life for God. We must abide in Christ. If you, if you remember the word abide, especially in, in light of Scripture and what it talks about, is to remain in and a lot of times in a couple of different passages in the New Testament, abide is given this idea of like a vine and a branch and how a branch needs to abide in the vine because that's where it gets all of its sustenance. That's where it gets all of its life is by abiding in the vine, in the root. To abide in Christ means that everything that we are and everything we do flows from him it means when you're praying for patience with somebody you're not asking god to increase your patience you're asking to borrow his because we abide in him he doesn't make us better we become less and he becomes greater that's the difference with christianity it's not behavioral management it's not becoming better at what we do it's doing what he does through him and through his power that we step aside and we allow His power to flow through us. That's what abiding in Christ is. It's that we draw from Him the things we need to live our life. When we abide in death, everything we are and everything we do flows from death. That's the difference between abiding in Christ and abiding in death, John is saying here. In verse 38, Uh, John chapter 7, verse 38, he says, Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you remember this verse? Hopefully you're familiar with this idea. Um, Possibly the same author wrote both of these. Uh, Some believe that the same person who wrote John also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, or at least one of the Johns, uh, 1st, 2nd, or 3rd. But this reminds me of what John is talking about in 1 John here. That to abide in Christ means that rivers of living water flow from us. Notice, this isn't a command. Nowhere in here, and trust me, uh, 
because I research it, not because I know Greek, but if you study the Greek, there's no command in the Greek either. This is a statement of reality. This isn't, well, if you work really hard. This isn't if you go to church really often. This isn't if you read your Bible every day. This is if you know Jesus, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. All believers will experience living water flowing from their hearts. If you don't experience this, you are abiding in death and not in Christ. There doesn't exist uh, uh, like an introductory level of Christianity where you still know Jesus and you're still going to heaven, but rivers of living water don't flow from you. That doesn't exist. In other words, what John is saying here, you don't know Christ as your Savior if you don't have rivers of living water flowing from your heart. And what does that mean? Well, those of you who are believers that know Jesus, you know that, man, like this morning, we're talking about Operation Christmas Child, and you see the joy on a little kid's face as they're given a gift, and you know that the message of Jesus is going with that. And man, does it bring you just joy. Or you find yourself in a scenario or a situation, like we watched the video of Corey Tenboom, and she said she's confronted with one of her abusers, one of the people that uh, had treated her so horribly. And though she could produce nothing but hatred for him, she didn't have a choice. The love of Jesus flowed through her. Living water flowed from her to others. And John makes it pretty clear in, in many different places, and we'll, we'll continue to talk about it even today, that you can't help it but to have living water flow from you. You, uh, you can't have hatred reside in your heart. Though all that Corey Tenboom could produce was hatred, from her, love went out. Forgiveness went out. Not hatred, but love. And for some of us, we've been wronged by church people. We've been wronged by maybe someone in the room. And somehow we're still able to hold on to the hate. John's saying it very clearly. That means you don't know Jesus. It can't coexist, he says. From us must flow rivers of living water. Verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is exactly what we're just talking about. John's returning to this again. Now, we're only in chapter three of 1 John. How many times has John come back to this idea that, that hatred for a person and the love of Jesus, eternal life, cannot coexist together? Why would John be seemingly beating a dead horse like this? Because even in the first century church, they had people who were holding on to hatred and thinking that somehow they still knew Jesus as their Savior. It wasn't possible. Now, in this church, wherever John is writing this to, whatever this original audience was, it's very likely that they had been horrifically abused by Roman people because that's who their oppressors were. Maybe they experienced death in their family because of the Roman uh, rule in their city, their town, wherever this is. And yet John is telling them, hatred cannot coexist with eternal life. Those of you who know Jesus, you know that truth. You know there are people that sometimes you, even, you want to hate them because of what they've done and what you know they're guilty of. And yet, 
You've got Jesus and you just won't give up. And so though you can only produce hatred in your heart, love is what flows from you. Not easy. Man, it takes some work and it takes some prayer and it takes some crying and it takes some time with Jesus. But forgiveness and love is what flows from somebody who is, somebody who is a believer. We have to learn that between hatred and eternal life, that to accept one means to deny the other. That's the basic math that John is giving us. So I think one of the natural questions that it leads us to this morning is, what more clearly characterizes your life? Bitterness, grudge-holding, complaining, constantly keeping account of how those around you have disappointed you? So, you know, th- this last one, this is a lot easier for us who live in a small town. We see someone doing well. Maybe we see them show up in church. Is our first thought like, yeah, I know what their life's all about. I know their history. I know what they've done. Pff, that person better not be on the worship team. That person better not be being considered for elder or for deaconess. What are they doing? I know their history. Man, that doesn't come from abiding in Christ. These are the results of abiding in death. That spirit of bitterness, that spirit of complaining, that spirit of grudge holding, that does not come from abiding in Jesus. Or, in contrast to that, does it resonate with us that living in this constant awe of the love of God and extending that love to others, especially those who have wronged us, do we find that our heart, though it might be hateful and have hatred in it, do we find that it, it still wants to love people, even that have wronged us greatly, even that have offended us and done things that we just don't want to be a part of and don't want to have in our life? That doesn't mean that we invite people back in to hurt us again all the time, but it does mean that we're able to forgive and we're able to love beyond what we would be capable of. Those are the fruits of abiding in Christ. I've met too many church people who have distanced themselves from the body because they've been hurt. Well, church people hurt me. I, I was in a church and it hurt me badly. And so they build a wall and they distance themselves from the church. No matter what the hurt, no matter what the offense, that doesn't come from abiding in Christ. Distancing ourselves, disobeying the word of God and cutting off fellowship from the body does not come from abiding in Christ. It comes from abiding in death and allowing our actions to be dictated by death. Allowing bitterness and hurt to dictate our community standards comes from abiding in death, not Jesus. And too often I've seen people who went to church, I don't know if I'd always call them Christians, church people or ex-churched people, they don't want anything to do with the church because it hurt them. And that's not the fruit of Jesus. The fruit of Jesus is constant forgiveness. Though we wrong Jesus every day, most of us have probably already wronged Jesus today, he still forgives us. Even though it's the 7,000th time he's had to forgive us for that individual sin, he still forgives us. Any of us had to forgive someone 7,000 times? Maybe if you have kids, but... He never stops. There's, there's nothing you're going to do that's going to make Jesus go, all right, that's it, you know what? 
I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Get away from me. He's always there, always ready to forgive. And so should we. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Those who have a relationship with Jesus, we know love. It's because we know him who is love that we can extend his love to others. See, the world, they can tolerate people. They can even extend a type of love. They can extend love to others. I've met husbands and wives who don't know Jesus, and I I believe they love each other, but it's not God's love. There's a difference to the love of God. That's what we have access to, and that's what we are supposed to extend to the world. It's a love that's not conditional. You've probably heard the term agape, or, you know, if someone's really trying to impress you, they try to agape. They try to (laughs) pronounce it like the Greek is. Well, guess what? No one cares. Uh, One of the reasons I still will call it a gyro, all right? Uh, Not calling it a euro. I don't care how it's supposed to be pronounced. We've heard of agape love, of this unconditional love. And man, I don't know about you, but I haven't found access to it in my own life yet. But through Jesus, man, we can extend that. That unconditional love that only exists in Jesus. The world cannot do that. So what does it mean here when it says, lay down our lives for our brothers? I think most of our minds probably go to like being willing to die for somebody, right? I, I know that's where my mind goes when I, when I think of that. Any of you had that opportunity this week? You were The opportunity to, to put yourself in a place where you could die for somebody else? Probably not. How about this year, maybe your entire lifetime? Probably not going to happen. So maybe our mind needs to go to what this could actually mean for us. What I think it's talking about is what Paul was referencing in his letter to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's a principle I talk about all the time in pre-marriage counseling with anybody. It's one thing to be willing to die for my spouse. Man, I know my wife knows if I had a choice, I'd always give my life before hers. It's a whole different thing to live for my wife. That's laying our life down for somebody. It's saying, today I'm going to consider myself less important than you. My needs, my desires, less important than yours. That's laying my life down for my spouse. Not just being willing to take a bullet someday because that doesn't happen very often, but being able to live every day as if she's more significant than I am. She's more important. Her dreams, her desires, her wants, what restaurant she wants to go to is more important than mine. That's how we lay down our lives in our marriage. And so for the church family, it's not being willing to take a bullet for somebody in the church, it's more often than not looking around and saying their needs, what's going on in their life, I'm going to consider it more significant than mine. I'm not going to come just to be a consumer here. I'm going to be a part of this church family to be a contributor. That's a big difference. I think one of the problems of 
church, and I don't mean just the Western world or American church. I mean basically the way church is set up is I get up on a Sunday morning, I talk, you sit, you listen, maybe you say amen, maybe you laugh at me uh, a few times, uh, but it creates almost like a participatory idea, this consumer. You're here to consume. I know most of you aren't here to consume, uh, but it can create this idea of the church that uh, because there's a pastor or because we have a worship leader, well, that's what their job is. Their job is to create, to contribute, and my job is to consume. And that's not the idea of the church. The idea of the church is that people who gather together to contribute to the spiritual, physical, emotional needs of one another, to meet the needs of the body, whatever they may be. And you see it in Acts. When there was a need, what happened? The church came together. They sold things that they needed to sell in order to help people financially, but they were there. They shared meals together. They prayed with each other. They were in each other's homes. They invaded each other's lives. There was not uh, some separation of church and like personal life. It was all jammed together, and the Word of God went like wildfire all over the world. The whole world was changed by that. I promise you it wasn't changed by a sermon. It was changed by the relational aspect of the church, that everybody came together and saw this as their family, their body, and it was time for them to contribute, not just consume. Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If we can see people in need and not feel the desire to help, John is wondering how the love of God can abide in them. He's saying if if we can just see people in desperate need and do nothing about it, how can we call ourselves a Christian? As you drive through Dubois or whatever town you live in, does the lostness, the brokenness, the helplessness, does it bother you? As you look around at even our own church family and you see people dealing with brokenness, see people dealing with spiritual strongholds in their life does it bother you seeing these things take place i know some of you it definitely does i hear you talk about it i hear you process that stuff as we drive through our town the brokenness that we're that is so evident it should bother us and not just like oh man i wish somebody would do something about that but it should bother us to the point that we want to do something about it as John mentions in the next verse, verse 18. Little children, let us, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's what John's saying. And now hear what I'm saying with this next part. I think too often we can dismiss a need by claiming that we're going to pray for somebody. I don't think it's wrong to pray for people, and I believe in the power of prayer. Man, when we genuinely go to the throne of God and we seek his help in advancing his kingdom. There's nothing that can, that can challenge that power. But I think sometimes we use that as, a, as an excuse card. Instead of doing something about a problem, we say, oh, let me pray for that. Oh, I'm gonna pray about that. I think we use it to excuse ourselves from any responsibility of actually doing something. I think sometimes we can even do that in missions. Speaking of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, we've had international workers in, we've heard about the work overseas, and it's easier to pray for it than it is to go and do something about it. 
Now, that's not for everybody. God's going to call specific individuals for that kind of thing. But as we look at the lostness of our town, do we just pray for it? Or do we actually do something about it? One of the things you'll hear from me if, if we're talking, if we're sitting down for coffee or something and you're wondering, I don't know what God's will for my life is. One of the questions I'm going to ask you was, what do you see in our town? What do you see in the church that bothers you? For Let's just use Molly as an example. Kids overseas who don't have access to the, the financial wealth that we have, that bothered her. And so she started Operation Christmas Child here. She's been a huge proponent of Operation Christmas Child. It's not just, well, let me pray for those kids in that other country. It's, you know what, let's do something about it. And so she spends her whole year gathering stuff. She is a pack rat at home with stuff for, for shoeboxes. And, and she, she's engaged. I'm sure that Molly's praying for those children and the boxes and all that, but she's actually doing something as well. And that's what John's talking about here. That not just in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. That's what's going to change the world is when we actually engage in it. Uh, some of us were called to pray for certain things. We're not in, called to actually engage. Others were called to engage as we pray. Prayer should be the backbone and, and the heart of everything we do, but it shouldn't be the only thing we do. Verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. See, John kind of changes the line of thought that he's going through here to help us see how living a life of action helps us when we doubt. If we're living a life that clearly shows our love for God by living out a life of love to others, he's saying it will reassure our heart before God. We'll know that we are his when we can look back and say, man, I, I've, been, I've been pushed so often into love for other people. It reassures our heart before God. Verse 20 says, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Even when we feel like a bad Christian or like we mess everything up, Man, I don't know about you, but I get there sometimes. I get there where I'm standing before Jesus and I'm like, why do you even want me? I get this wrong more than I get it right. Man, I'm messing everything up. I don't like half the people you call me to love. What am I doing here? It has nothing to do with any of you. Uh, man, I just lied again. Uh, but we do. We get to places where we mess up and we feel like we're getting it wrong so often. I don't know about you, but even today, I'm a pastor, and, and I love Jesus, and I know I'm his, but I'm still, I don't know, maybe I'm not as good a Christian as some of us, but I'm not able to escape that thought sometimes that, am I even a Christian? Do I even know Jesus is my Savior? I get there sometimes, especially when I'm really messing things up. Even when our heart condemns us, John says, God is greater, and he knows everything. God sees us when we live out our life of love, even if nobody else sees it. This is a similar problem if you've ever studied the book of James. Some people really dislike James. I think Luther hated the book of James uh, because they thought it was about like you were saved through works. And that's not what James is talking about. What James is trying to say in that and what John is trying to say here is you can't love God. You can't legitimately be in relationship with God and do absolutely nothing about the brokenness, the lostness, the hurt you see in the world. It's not possible. 
Same way that I can't say I love my wife and I see her crying when I walk in the house and go, ah, again? And just walk into another room because it bothers me. That's not love. I can say I love her all I want, but if I'm not willing to actually engage and love my wife in tangible ways, it's not love. It's not, be, it's not that I, I love her only because I do things. It's that I can't love her without doing things. It's going to be evidenced by the things I do. Same way with our love for God. If we legitimately, genuinely love Jesus and we're in relationship with him, we will be doing things. Just like he spoke of earlier in, in, in the book of John when it says that rivers of living water will flow from us. It's not a choice. It's not like an add-on to Christianity. It's just part of being his. Verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. If we're living the way that God wants us to, our heart will have no power to condemn us and we will remain confident before God. And that helps us further as John continues in the next verse, verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandment and do what pleases him. Having this confidence helps us to boldly ask God for things. When we're living out, when we're we're looking at the lostness around us, when we see the brokenness surrounds us in our towns, in our cities, in our church even, and when we're doing things and we're engaging in activity that helps to take the kingdom of God where it needs to be, when our heart tries to condemn us, we can say, no, this is what I'm about, the kingdom of God, and then we can ask God for things. Notice, I wanna point out this, this is, uh, doesn't mean that when, we, uh, when we, we will get what we want, when we ask for frivolous things, like when we're engaged in, the, in advancing the kingdom of God, we're not going to be asking God for uh, things that are outside of advancing his kingdom. When we're in it, when we're in the trenches and we're, ask, we're, we're engaged in what God wants to do in this city and in our church and in our town and in the lives around us, the things that will be at the forefront of our heart are things that advance his kingdom. And so when we ask for them, he is happy to give them. And we'll ask for them because we have the boldness of knowing I'm in this. I'm invested in this. I know ask, I, I'm gonna pick on Molly again because all these shoeboxes are still here. Ask her if she feels confident boldly praying that God changes lives for these boxes. I bet she does because she's engaged in it. And she knows I can ask God to do this and he will do it because of what she's, what her priorities are in that. I know that, I know for sure, her prayer is not, Lord, help me to look great in front of the whole church family because we have 81 boxes. She didn't even want to get up here. She had to be coerced into getting up here (laughs) because her passion is that little kids would receive Jesus through a box, not that she would get a claim and she would get some status from the church. Verse 23, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. First, we have to believe in Jesus as the Christ, John is saying. Secondly, we will love one another. Love God, love others. It's the same commandment Jesus gave when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? Love God, love others. And I love what Jesus says there. And here's another commandment that's equal to loving God, love others. He didn't say, well, this is an addition to it. This isn't quite as important. 
Jesus says, man, loving people is just as important as loving God because you can't love God unless you love people. That doesn't work that way. Even Jesus affirms that. If we love God, we will have a heart for other people. And from that heart will flow rivers of living water. We will desperately want people to know Jesus. If we can live out our lives, if we can engage with our coworkers and people in the world and never think about helping them get closer to Jesus, John is saying, man, that's not a love for God. Because it's impossible to claim a love for God and not have a love for others. Verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. By living according to God's plan and commandments, we abide in God. That way we can be sure that he abides in us. Further confidence is given to us in the Holy Spirit. This isn't the only place the New Testament talks about this. I already kind of addressed this, but if you've been a believer for any period of time, you've probably gone through seasons where you feel like you're getting it all wrong and you wonder, do I even know Jesus? The presence of the Holy Spirit is evidence that we do know Him. If you don't have a history of a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led life, You should question if you actually know Jesus as Savior or if you just know about His role as Savior. I think, unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of people that stand before Jesus one day who just know about His role as Savior and don't actually know Him as Savior. They hear verses like this and they're like, well, I don't know if I'm ever Spirit-led or Spirit-filled, but that's not really that important. That's for the Charismatics. That's not what John's saying. John's saying that if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, then the Holy Spirit is the evidence of that. How do you know you have the Holy Spirit? Unless He's what is leading you, if He's what is guiding you, and He is what is empowering you to do the things of God. There should be countless aspects to your life that others can look at. If you want to know this, ask somebody that knows you and say, hey, do you ever see the Holy Spirit leading and guiding me? Do you, do you, do you see evidence of, God, of the Holy Spirit filling me? Man, if they know you, then they should, absolutely, 100%. I saw this just, this just yesterday. Saw this today. That's evidence of the Holy Spirit leading you. That's a Spirit-led life. If you ask the people who know you best and they go, I don't know, what? I don't know. That should lead you to question, lead you to wonder. Because the Holy Spirit is that evidence. And I think way too often we just brush that off and we think it's not important. We think, ah, that's some, like, that's some weird theology. It's basic theology to John. He is saying that is a huge part of evidence. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. That's how we know Jesus Christ abides in us, is he leads us, guides us, and fills us with his power. Somehow, my computer just decided that it didn't like my sermon anymore. (laughs) There we go. We're back. Are you spirit-filled? Are you spirit-led? So what can we take away from this chapter today? Well, I think this Hopefully, 1 John chapter 3 causes us to ask ourselves 
How are we actively loving those around us? Not just by praying for them, not just by thinking about them, and, or by saying, boy, somebody should do something about that. Do we just love in word? Do we just love by praying for people or saying we're going to pray for people? Or are we intentional and engaged in helping show God's love to others? Are we a conduit of God's love to those around us? Does rivers, do rivers of living water flow from our hearts? If we can just be comfortable sitting back in our comfortable lives and claiming that we're going to pray for others and never lift a finger to help others, John tells us that our heart will condemn us. That If that's you this morning, you probably often deal with your heart condemning you. And you try to get away from it. You, maybe you try to do more Christian service. You put more in the offering plate. I, I don't know what the solution is that you've come up with to try to fix your heart condemning you. But it will stop once you engage in the work of God. Once the Holy Spirit is empowering you, leading you, guiding you, giving you passion for the lost, passion for people who don't know him, passion for people who do know him. Man, that, that dispels that pretty quickly. We'll have nothing to fight that condemnation with if we don't have a life lived for the love of others and for God. Be led by the Holy Spirit this week. Be filled with the Holy Spirit this week. My prayer is that each of us has multiple opportunities this week for the Holy Spirit to fill us and to engage the communities around us through us. And that's my hope. If you're questioning this morning, like, man, I'm not sure what this is all about, my prayer is that by the time I see you the next time, whether that's tonight, tomorrow, or next Sunday, that you have a story of how God used you and how the Holy Spirit filled you to engage in loving people and, to, and that it would leave every question behind on whether or not you know him as your Savior. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. What a blessing it is to know you to be loved by you, to have access to love that others have no knowledge of, have no reference for, something the world cannot fathom. Lord, would we be a family where when others enter, when someone who doesn't know you walks in, they would be confused and wonder what's our agenda, what's this all about? as they see the love we have for one another, that it would evidence more than any words, theology, or outreach program could how much you love us and how much love we have access to. Lord, I pray uh, for those in our congregation who are, are, are being taken out by the spirit of bitterness, spirit of grudge holding, of keeping accounts of wrongs. Lord, I pray that you would break those chains this morning that they would feel the weight of the spirit of bitterness on their back and they would just fall to their knees and ask you to remove it. Holy Spirit, would you break chains in this area in our church family this morning, especially around those who love you and have been taken out because of the hurt they've received. Lord, I pray that you would help us to love you by loving others, that we would be people not uh, about talk, but people of action. And Holy Spirit, would you empower us to do the things that extend your love 
to the communities of Dubois and the surrounding communities, Lord, would, would the people of this area know that we are known by you, by the love we have for them and for one another. And I pray blessings, Lord, over every person here, that they would have access to your power this week, that they would be filled and be used by you in multiple avenues this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen, have a great week.